Hi, James. Ben, how are you? You know, James, I am scarred. I am dirty. I am carrying the burdens of the struggle, but I am here and I have made it. That's what we all want to hear. <laughs> the, the, the fact that you're here, hard anyway. I'm not sure about dirty. <laughs> Well, we were recording on a Monday night, a full week after the article that we were going to discuss. We were supposed to record last week, but uh, it turns out I'm on the road and I have a travel mic. And it turns out this travel mic requires a USB mini plug, which is not the USB micro. That's the one that people are more familiar with, the really flat one. This one's a little bulkier. And it turns out I went to my microphone to my daughter and I got the microphone back and I did not get the cord back. And so I showed up without a cord. So I, I'm in Silicon Valley. I'm like, I can find this. So I tried Target first. Surprisingly large number of cords at Target, but they did not have the USB mini, which is understandable. It's a, you know, it's a relatively old at this point. So there's a Best Buy nearby. I'm like, uh, I could go there and find it. So I'm like, no, you know what? I don't want to stop again. I'm driving 25 minutes to Fry's Electronics because if there's one store on the planet that is going to have a USB mini plug, it is going to be Fry's. Well, Fry's has three aisles in the store devoted to USB cords. They have approximately 2,400 USB micro plugs, all of which appear to be the exact same, by the way. I'm not sure what's going on with their inventory management, but they do not have a single USB mini plug, which means the podcast did not get recorded on Saturday. I actually bought a different mic. Then I went back to the house that I was staying at and it had been locked in my absence and I couldn't get back in. Needless to say, that is why it is now Monday night at 11.49 p.m. And we are finally recording a podcast about something that happened a week ago. Well, here we are. And that's what counts. And if you sound a little bit different because you're on a travel mic, I might also sound a little bit different. I'm getting over a cold. So it's not a weekend spent drinking whiskey and cigars as I got live updates from you trying to find a travel mic. Yeah, stuff commentating what I was doing. But... (laughs) But yes, we are back. Not only are we back podcasting, we are back with the struggle. We are pushing through. We are getting this out. I'm glad we could resuscitate it. But you know, the reason I'm here in like, we could just canceled it. But I really, really, really wanted to talk about this keynote from Apple last week, which is what we're going to discuss. I actually wrote about antitrust stuff today. We're already like into the next article cycle. But I really want to talk about this because I thought it was one of the most interesting keynotes in a very long time. It was interesting, not just from an Apple perspective, but also from the perspective of a lot of the stuff that you and I talk about. And no matter what it took, no matter how many hours it is spent in fries or ultimately, as it were, actually ordering the thing off of Amazon, I wanted to get this done. And so here we are and let's do it. Yeah. Sounds good. So last week, Apple had their keynote for WWC, and I kind of opened my article about discussing how, you know, these are the keynotes that are about software, but inevitably, if there is ever hardware announced, that is always sort of the headline from the event. And that was certainly the case here where Apple announced the Mac Pro and the Mac Pro display, which costs as much as a Mac Pro. And you know what? It's a computer that I will never own. I never have any compunction of owning. I have an iMac and a MacBook Escape, and it's totally fine for my needs. But we'll get to probably the more interesting and compelling stuff from this keynote in a moment. But I thought it was kind of worth starting here because there was an aspect where Apple was up there and, you know, they're like, let's make the most awesome computer we possibly can, which is what the Mac Pro should have always been. And they kind of lost that for a while and they did it. And it was kind of exhilarating almost to watch. Like it's a computer that I'll never be able to afford. The jokes write themselves about the thousand dollar stand. Actually, I think the $200 visa mount is actually more 
absurd than the stand if you think about it. It's like a metal circle. <laughs> but it was like, yeah, like it's cool to see people or companies or whatever it might be go out and try to do something and make it the absolute best that they can do it, like no matter the constraints or throwing away the constraints. It was great. And I thought it was an interesting way to lead into this discussion and to lead into my article because I think it captured something that was going on with sort of the entire event. Yeah. You know what it reminded me of on your topic of excitement or exhilaration? It reminded me of the kind of showmanship that used to be involved in the WWDC keynotes of old or the Macworlds of old where, I mean, I lived in Australia as a teenage kid, but I was so into it. I would sit up and watch and wait to see what they announced. I mean, yeah, the software is great, but it was always the hardware that would almost always steal the show. And it was cool to get a little bit of that feel back because it's felt like it's been lacking a little bit, especially on the Mac front the last little while. No, absolutely. And the question of it sort of lacking on the Mac front was a strong sense among, I think, Mac users. I certainly thought this was the case that the Mac had sort of lost focus for Apple. And every time that Tim Cook got on stage and he talked about, we love the Mac, it's like you only get up on stage and proclaim your love for something if there is like significant doubt as to whether you actually love the thing, right? Like Tim Cook doesn't get on stage and say, we love the iPhone. <laughs> the iPhone is great. It's like, yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> it makes up, you know, well over half of your revenue. It's interesting to think about like, why did that happen? And there's a very sort of clinical analysis, which is the Mac was like a distant third relative to iOS devices generally. And you could make an argument that, oh, and Apple sort of defenders and enthusiasts, or I think those are the kind words to use, would frame it as, oh, you just don't understand Apple. Apple is leaving the past behind and moving forward into the future. And it's like, well, no, because leaving the past behind means like actually like cutting something off. And Apple's not only not cutting off the Mac, they're kind of dribbling it out. Like you could buy like years old models, years after they were released, woefully out of date. The models that they did release were the Mac Pro original catastrophe, which clearly featured sort of industrial design and looks over actual usefulness. And then they repeated it with MacBook Pro with, you know, making it a beautiful swelt sort of machine that was not actually meeting the needs of a lot of folks and then had all these horrible keyboard problems to boot. And it was like a company that clearly took its eye off the ball with regard to the Mac. And the question is like, where was that eye? What were they actually looking at in the meantime? I feel like that was a rhetorical setup, but like it's the iPhone, right? And even the iPad, these things are the fancy new things. And this is where a lot of the money's being made. And this is where a lot of the growth is coming from. And a lot of the Mac users are almost rusted on. And you can also see it from the perspective of folks inside the company, right? Like you want to be working on the hot thing that's growing really fast. The thing that everyone knows Apple for, the iPhone. If you're an engineer and you're opting into projects, like that's the thing you want to be doing as opposed to, well, the Mac, you know, like that's the thing that's been around forever. It's not the thing that's growing. And yeah, it's growth is such a critical thing in terms of attracting people's attention because a growth in a product reflects growth opportunities for people in terms of the organization's expanding. You can grow in responsibility. You get to work on much more new and exciting things as opposed to something that's a little more stagnant. And then it becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Well, it's not only that. I think there's a really interesting coincidence as far as 
updates here. And to be clear, it is a coincidence. Like the development cycles of these products is years long. So, you know, I think it's easy to make mistakes to tie things that have similar dates too closely together. So I want to be super clear up front that this is a coincidence, but it's a sort of happy coincidence, or in this case, a sad coincidence if you're sort of an Apple fan. It was in 2015 that Apple came out with these new MacBook Pros that seemed to favor being neat, having the touch bar, because we're not going to do a touch screen. So we're going to do this thing that we're not sure is actually pros want or need to use. I hate that thing. Oh, I hate it too. We're going to have all these USB-A only ports. We're going to get rid of all these other things. We're going to be living in Dongle City. And then this keyboard that has been sort of an incredible disaster. It turns out that was the same year that the iPhone 6S Plus came out. And again, I'm not saying these things are directly correlated. It's just interesting how these things work. That was the last quarter of 2015, the first quarter of Apple's fiscal 2016 year. That Apple, I think I remember there's a tweet like saying, you retake the headlines of all of Apple's press releases over the last like... X amount of years, like an insanely long amount of time. It was Apple reports record quarterly earnings. Apple reports record quarterly earnings. And the last one was Apple reports quarterly earnings. It was the first one that was not a record because the 6S sold you know, much less than the, or maybe it was like about the same. It was some weird thing about relative to the iPhone 6, but it was clearly not growing. And it turns out that was actually the iPhone had peaked. The iPhone's units have been basically steady ever since then. The, the iPhone 7 sold about as many as the iPhone 6S. The 8 and X cycle was about the same as the 7. I mean, revenue shot up because they raised the prices in both cases. And then, you know, this last year, I think they don't release unit sales anymore, but now it's actually probably a bit of a decline. And it's interesting because I feel like it's these last sort of three to four years, three and a half years since the 6S, where this sort of Apple's keynotes have not been interesting. I would argue Apple has a company has not been interesting. It was that next quarter that Apple's earnings, when they announced it was no longer a record, that they came out with a services narrative where they released a supplementary document that kind of claimed all developer money and saying, like, look, all this money is flowing through our store and you should think about valuing us in this regard. And we've talked about this in podcasts about this. and I've written about this lots of times. I called it Apple's middle age a couple of years ago. This idea that, you know, the growth is over. So let's see how we can get more money from our customers. We can sell them more things. We can get more money through the services. We can raise prices on the products that they want. And we fretted at the time that this is dangerous. This is a dangerous place for a company. There's something corrosive about that approach to making money. And yeah, sure, it looks good on the financial statements. Revenue is still going up. Profits are still going up. But the way in which that revenue and profits were going up was different than the way they had gone up previously. And I almost didn't appreciate it fully until this keynote. You could feel it in the keynotes. The keynotes were boring and there was a real lack of spirit, particularly relative to sort of what we saw this last week. Yeah, they were playing it safe. Like, I mean, the middle age framing is exactly right. You get to a point where it's less about growing things and it's more about protecting what you have. And that manifests in all kinds of ways. But I agree with you around the keynote. What's interesting, though, is when you start to internalize this thing that you've been trying to protect, maybe isn't going to be enough. And there's a little bit of fear and a little bit of, oh, man, we're going to have to strike out again and start doing some new stuff because if we just keep doing what we're doing, we're going to end up in trouble. It's almost like a little bit of that just started to catch on, potentially catch on in this last quarter. And like you see the results of it in this keynote. Well, you know, I think the turning point was, and again, 
it's always tricky to finger specific moments in time, particularly for tech companies, particularly hardware tech companies, because these efforts go back years. Like we're going to talk about the watch and its importance in a moment. And that's something that came out 2014. So bear with us here. But I think the critical point for Apple was January 2nd or January 3rd this year, they had to issue a revenue warning. They say, we are going to miss our numbers. We're going to miss them by a lot. We're going to miss them so badly that we need to come out with a press release and a letter from the CEO several weeks early so that investors can prepare. And, you know, to the extent they wanted to hold on, they wanted to milk the iPhone, they wanted to sort of drive revenue from their existing customers. And in a way that, you know, we've talked about is is somewhat unpleasant, particularly around things like the App Store, for example. Like that was no longer viable. Like they were kind of sold their soul. And it turns out they weren't even getting a good deal in the process. Like they were still, it didn't work. They would miss their numbers. They missed them dramatically. And it almost feels like, again, this is classic overfitting, looking backwards. I know everyone that's going to, wants to respond in this regard. It's totally fair, but it just feels like it's like they were freed. They were freed of like, you know what? The iPhone is over. And the title I wished I'd used for this article, I came up with it later that night. No comment if cigars or whiskey were involved. It was, this was the first post iPhone keynote. And what I mean by that is, of course, the iPhone was a part of the keynote. The iOS was part of the keynote. The iPhone's not going anywhere. It's going to continue to be a major revenue profit driver for Apple for a very long time to come. It's going to continue to be the platform on which they launch all sorts of efforts. It's the key to the puzzle. Make no mistake. But... It feels like Apple has really internalized that the iPhone is no longer the end-all be-all for the company. It's not the vehicle for growth. It is not worthy of complete attention to the dereliction of everything else that's going on in the company. And that's what you could feel at this keynote was Apple pushing forward on multiple fronts. Again, it's almost one of those things where, yes, looking backwards is always easy, but this is almost a case where you couldn't really appreciate how stagnant things had come until you felt something different. Yeah. I mean, as a Mac user, I'm excited about this because again, it starts to feel like suddenly the ugly stepchild is getting some attention again. And there are a whole bunch of us that are very fond of the ugly stepchild that's the Mac. The thing that I am most excited about to see where this freed perspective takes Apple is actually with the watch because like we've been back and forth on the watch for some time. It is the thing that I am perhaps most excited about. I know it's selling very well, but I still don't feel like they've cracked at 100%. And perhaps this is the last thing that allows them to do so, which is letting go of the phone and starting to think about the watch as something else entirely. Yeah. I mean, the watch is a classic example of, I kind of mentioned already, like they've been working on the watch for a long time and they've been working towards independence for a long time. And, you know, I have to say some of my arguments that podcast actually have held up fairly well over time, but um, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I actually think we were both right. You know, this idea of the watch, you know, starting as dependent on the phone and then it got cellular capability. And, you know, actually, I think the one keynote that I do remember and that I really liked in sort of the last few years was in 2017 when they launched AirPods and the AirPods worked with the watch. And I think that was when the cellular watch came out also, or no, it might've been just GPS. I can't remember, but it was clear that was well on the road to sort of, you could go out the door without your iPhone. And I made the point that 
I appreciate that Apple is kind of running pell-mell to this future where like Siri is the center of interaction because heaven knows they're not particularly good at it. And it's safer to kind of hold on to the iPhone. The truth is, though, you know, I think they really were holding on to the iPhone and now they've really truly let go. And again, the watch has been building towards this. It's been moving towards a world of being independent. It still requires an iPhone to get set up, but now it has its own app store, for example, like another thing you don't need a phone for. It has its own cellular connection. It has its own GPS. And now it's getting a streaming protocol. So you can like, you know, all sorts of things that make it something that you actually don't need an iPhone for. And I think it's very clear that in the not too distant future, you will be able to walk into a store, have an Android phone and buy an Apple watch. And that's great. That's a wonderful thing. And it's great for the watch. It's great for its addressable market. I actually disagree with you. I think the watch has found its niche as far as, you know, the health and fitness stuff goes. I don't think it's any accident that watch sales really took off once Apple sort of found that niche and really weaned heavily into to it. The initial criticism that we both had about the keynote, I wrote about the time, was the keynote was so unfocused, like it didn't know what this thing was and what it was for. And you could feel that in the actual like design of the product, particularly the software. But once they got that, once they got that focus, I think it's been on a great trajectory. But again, all this happened before this keynote. What's different now? And the example I go back to is we've talked a lot about the changes that Satya Nadella has made at Microsoft and the way that he's changed the company. He's focused the company around its capabilities, which is being sort of a broad-based service-oriented, enterprise-oriented business. And he's changed the culture to let go of Windows being the center of everything. And the truth, though, is that the people, it's easy to forget that Azure, which is sort of the biggest piece of Microsoft's future, was started by Steve Ballmer. It was called Windows Azure, of course. And Office on iOS, development of that was started under Steve Ballmer. Now, he he wouldn't release it until the Windows version was ready. But at the end of the day, like to the sort of the argument about this tech stuff takes a long time, that's all the case. At the same time, I still credit Nadella hugely for that because the culture and the capabilities and the focus on managerial level and the way that filters all the way down, that matters. It matters just as much as anything else. And there's been all kinds of companies that have launched the right product or have had the right idea and didn't succeed because they didn't have it fully figured out amongst themselves. First and foremost, look at Microsoft and mobile. I've said this before. People say Microsoft missed mobile. Microsoft was first to mobile. They came out with Windows Mobile in like 1999. Like they, they didn't miss it. They just didn't have any clue how to actually win in it. And I think there's something to that here. The watch was on this path regardless, but Apple is going to lean in. They're going to lean in heavily. And I think it's going to make a difference. Again, I feel a little uncomfortable. There's a little bit of hand waviness here. You know what I mean? Like, no, believe me, this matters. But the best evidence we have looking at other companies around these sorts of changes is that it does matter. Like actually just creating the technology and having the initiative isn't enough. Having the purpose and the focus and the discipline around a specific go-to-market that may actually hurt your core product, but it's better for the future product, it matters hugely. 100%. I mean, we saw this with Apple in the past with the iPod and when it didn't go nuts until they released it for Windows. And I'm not suggesting an analogous thing here for the watch. I don't think they're holding it back, but I agree with you. These steps are in the right direction. I really like the analogy to Microsoft and the phone. And you're absolutely right. Like back in 2006, Microsoft had a leading market share, but they were trying to take Windows and jam it down into the phone and they weren't willing to revisit things. I mean, I've probably litigated this previously. No, no, I'm with you. That's the same thing with the watch. 
Yeah, Apple's made a number of steps towards freeing the watch from the phone, which I think is awesome. But for me, the true test will be when that interface around the watch stops looking like the iPhone, like that little pick your little app that is like, we're going to take the iPhone and try shrinking it down to the watch. That's my little litmus test for whether they've really been able to remove their thinking from like, we're just going to take what was the phone paradigm and jam it down into the watch. I agree with you. The health thing feels like the right path, but I still don't think they've freed themselves entirely. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it's been multiple years. We can argue about the watch a little bit. I don't know, I feel like that's kind of like that's stuck there. It was a decision made early on. There hasn't been a better solution yet, but it doesn't really matter because no one actually uses that screen. Like, I think if you want something that goes in this direction, they added last year, I believe, where it would automatically start a workout if it sensed you were doing a workout and you forgot to launch it. And if you think about it, that's exactly what it should do, right? If this is a health and fitness device and so much of it entails being smart and being sort of aware and being something extra, well, then why is the customer even have to pick out a workout in the first place? Like, we feel your wrist going faster. We feel your heart picking up, we're going to start tracking a workout because that's probably what you intended to do. And if you want, you know, yes, there's sort of that vestigial app screen. But the truth is that the watch, I think, has pushed and part of the reason it's going to push that direction is because of the focus, because they know they're building a health and fitness device. They can start thinking much more clearly about what are the actual user interactions, where are the actual sort of app launching paradigms. In this case, the app launching paradigm is a heartbeat. It's not actually interact with any sort of screen. So that's why I think I think they're actually further along than you're giving them credit for. Hmm. That articulation is perfect. I just think Apple's at its best when it's, it's not just adding the smart feature, it's cutting out everything that's unnecessary. And you're right, it's vestigial, but like name me a great Apple product that's launched with a whole bunch of vestigial features. And the fact is interface is core to this thing. So again, I certainly recognize why you might disagree, but for me, that's the real test when, again, very personal, but that focus is there when they're cutting things that aren't used or make no sense. Like if they took that away, they would be forced to try to think about what you you just described in a whole bunch of different areas. And I think that could be incredibly powerful. Well, I think you're being stubborn on the watch, but what's new about that? So <laughs> do you want to get a free shot back at me? And then no, we can I, no we're, we're all good. <laughs> so there were three points that I sort of focused on in this article that I thought were meaningful. And we just hit one of them, which was the watch. The second one was, you know, the end of iTunes, which is, you know, I think maybe to your point where they gave up on this thing and split it into three separate apps into a music app, a podcast app and a video app. And it's almost like worth memorializing iTunes. iTunes is it's a critical piece of what made Apple what it is today. Like there, if there's one common thread that runs through all of it, it is iTunes. You know, Apple thought they're going to create movies. Steve Jobs was going to say, he said, movies are the future. And then <laughs> suddenly they realized, crap, all these people are downloading MP3s and making CDs. And they totally pivoted their strategy in a matter of like nine months. And they bought this company and rebuilt it to be iTunes. What was it? Sound Jam? Yeah, Sound Jam. It, they launched it in 2001. And I believe it was in January. And then they watched this new service. They watched it with a new iMac. They had a burner, CD burner, and it was a rip mix burn. And then the next month, I don't know if I've told this the story in the podcast before. Folks may be familiar with it. An Apple executive, uh, Rubenstein, is it? 
John Rubenstein. Yes, he was visiting in Japan about a separate matter. And in the course of the meeting, they came up to him and said, oh, by the way, we came up with this new hard drive. We have no idea what to do with it. It's really slow and really small. It's a 1.8-inch hard drive. And he's like, I know what we could do with that. And he brought this hard drive back to Apple, and Apple basically built the iPod around that hard drive. And they watched it. And that was February. They watched it in September. Like, you want to talk about moving fast. And we talk about the long lead cycles for hardware. This is literally, arguably, one of the most important devices in the history of technology. It was conceived, launched, and shipped in six months. It's crazy. But what made the iPod so brilliant was there were other hard drive MP3 players, none with the 1.8 drive, to be fair. There were also flash MP3 players that could hold like 10 songs and there you could burn your CDs. But what made the iPod so brilliant was that it leveraged the Mac. It leveraged iTunes and you could do all your music management and all your playlist creation, all that sort of stuff. You could do that on iTunes and then all that would sync to the iPod. It could just be a playback device. And so iTunes was sort of this critical component here. And then, of course, a couple years later, 2003, they added the iTunes Music Store, which again, the record labels were kind of willing to go on things is only on the Mac. And you mentioned a while ago that the big shift for Apple was porting iTunes to Windows. And again, iTunes, it's like this beachhead. It's this critical piece of everything that followed. And that exploded the market. Now they could reach everyone. They were not going to use the iPod to prop up the Mac. Like they recognize this is a device that deserves to live on its own right. And the way they accomplished that was through iTunes. Flash forward, the iPhone watches requires iTunes. It's built on top of that. The App Store is built on top of the iTunes Music Store. Like for all of this sort of hate we heap on the App Store and the lack of features and the lack of updating, a big part of it is built on technology that was created to sell you 99 cent songs. And so like there's a lot of decisions made early on that made it hard to do things like updates, for example, or, or all those sorts of things that we've wanted them to add. But again, this key thread sort of running through all along and the iPhone obviously, you know, took Apple to even greater heights. And I think it's fitting again, maybe it's just one of those happy coincidences that, you know, sort of the year that Apple had to face sort of the mortality of the iPhone. Face the music. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that they had to face the music as far as the iPhone, that it's the year iTunes dies. And again, this is so hand wavy and it's so like mushy almost, but it's so symbolic that that story's over for Apple. The iPod and the iPhone is sort of one continuous story of a company that could really do no wrong because the iPhone every year, why Apple was eerily accurate every single year on how many they would sell. Why? Because they knew we're selling to this many new carriers, we're going to this many new countries. They would force carriers to give them guaranteed sale numbers. So that's why they were so accurate for so long. And that's over. They've sold iPhones to the world after selling iPods to the world. And iTunes is dead. And that era for Apple is dead. And the company could not be better off for it. Yeah, I agree. So one thing about iTunes that I think you hinted at, but I think is worth explicitly calling out. You're absolutely right that there were these other MP3 players, but they required you to be really quite technical to get it to work. And the thing about it was it was so dead simple that iTunes is as much responsible for the iPod success as the iPod was because it was so challenging for people to get music across and it just made it so simple. And that expanded the market as 
much as the easy to use interface and the scroll wheel and all the other things that we think about much more ostensibly. You're talking about hand wavy and mushy stuff, but actually to me, uh, these feel like story arcs. I mean, it almost feels like I'm at the end of a season of Game of Thrones where like one or two arcs have come to an end and another one is starting up and someone who is out of the race is suddenly back in. And it's, I don't think these things are mushy at all. I think there's something to them and these stories are powerful in terms of cultures and understanding companies. So, well, I'll tell you why it matters. It's fine for you and I, we're recording a podcast and it's now 12, 20 in the morning because we're excited about these stories. But at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal, but you know where stories really matter is stories matter to Apple itself. They matter to Apple's employees. They matter to the folks that are doing the work to get this stuff done and get this stuff out there. And the great value that so many of these companies enjoy and that so many abuse, to be clear, but that they enjoy is the intrinsic motivation of their employees. And you're going to not just get more efficient work from a sort of dollars and cents perspective. You're going to get better work. You're going to get inspired work when people believe the story that you're telling them about the company. And I've talked to enough Apple employees to know that a story about raising prices and collecting rents on apps is not a particularly inspiring story. I think that's such a great point. It's something that I've only recently come to understand myself is how fundamentally we rely on stories. We're storytelling creatures and we make sense of the world through this. We'd love to think it's all done through data, but you need to look at nothing more than watching a finance guy try to explain the markets. Like if that guy was actually able to predict with the same certainty that he could tell you a story about what happened, he wouldn't be reading the finance. He'd be off on a beach in the Caribbean somewhere being very rich. But the extent to which we understand this and the way that understand the world through stories and the way it shapes our behavior. I don't think you can underestimate it. One other thing, I know I did face the music, but the Game of Thrones reference while you were talking, I was like, I think maybe we have a uh, podcast title, Game of Phones. (laughs) I mean, I can't not do it now. (laughs) You're on a roll tonight. We should always get you late at night. No, I I agree. And I think this story element mattered in sort of another way with with this keynote. And, you know, we've talked about the questions of privacy, mostly in the context of Facebook, but also Apple. And a lot of, you know, Apple folks would get mad at me. But I do think there was an aspect where, I mean, Apple cared about privacy, but I think Apple first and foremost cared about making great products. Like that was what drove them. And a happy side effect was that because they made great products that they could sell at a profit, they didn't need to collect data. They didn't need to have an advertising business. And by the way, Apple tried to launch advertising businesses. They have multiple times in the past. They kind of got one working with the App Store and apps, but they've tried lots of times. And the reality is they're just not very good at it because that's not what they're good at. We've talked about this. They're not good at sort of iterative services. They're good at making jewel-like products that have a finish date and have a ship date, and they're going to make it as perfect as they can and then ship it. And that's not how you do sort of online services that are monetized by advertising, to say the least. And I first came up with the term strategy credit back in 2013. I just started trajectory and the NSA revelations came down and Apple released this super smug press release being like, well, you know, we have no issue here because we don't collect our user data on those lines. And it was like Apple like saw an opportunity and they sort of grabbed it. And again, I'm not saying Apple didn't care about privacy. I mean, like any company, any person has a list of priorities that drive them, that drive decision making. You'll compromise on any priority other than your sort of number one priority. And I don't think that privacy was that number one priority. It was a priority, but it wasn't sort of like king of the hill. 
You get the very real sense, though, for Apple that that has shifted. It's no longer fair to label Apple's talk about privacy, which was throughout this keynote and has been throughout all the pronouncements as of late. I don't think it's fair to just dismiss it as a strategy credit anymore. It is an animating feature for them. It is a driver, it is a motivation. And that is important because it's a story that they're telling themselves. They're telling themselves that these other companies are evil, like in so many words, they are bad. We are good. We are doing it for our customers. We are making decisions. We are sacrificing certain capabilities because this is the right thing to do. And again, this point actually has nothing to do with whether or not Apple is right. That's almost a completely separate conversation. The conversation that I want to have right now is that that matters for Apple itself. It matters to have a motivating factor that you believe into the depths of your heart. It doesn't actually matter if it's true or not. It just matters that you believe. Yeah. I mean, the flip side of this for me is like the principles. And I think one version of what you just described is if you can get folks to believe in the fact that you're a principled organization and it relates to motivation, but it, it, it lights a fire in people. It's like, this is what we're about. And you're right. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. The funny thing is though, in getting people to believe it, it starts to become true. And that goes back to that storytelling aspect that we mentioned earlier. That's exactly right. And the point I would make about this, I'm not trying to be controversial by saying it doesn't matter if it's true or not, because I saw the exact same thing from Google a month ago. The reason I was so excited about Google's keynote, I loved the fact they were leaning into the fact they collect data. And they were explicit about this saying This feature works because of your data that we get from XYZ. Like They weren't hiding it at all. And that keynote excited me in the same way the Apple keynote excited me, despite the fact their messages were totally opposite. Because what excites me is not necessarily the message per se, but it's the understanding of the importance of owning and believing what you do, not just to the world at large, but to your employees and the impact that has on how great the products are that you will make. 100%. There's an authenticity that shines through. And I mean, there are other aspects to this too. Like Google can say we're collecting the data and Google have a track record of being much better around the data than some other folks. But like, it feels very different to the mealy mouth stuff that Facebook comes out about. We're like, oh yes, we care about your privacy, this, that, and the other. And it just doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel like they're telling you the truth. It doesn't have any of that fire. Again, like you're absolutely right. These are two companies at opposite ends of the spectrum on data. And you get excited about both of them, Google and Apple, with what they've done with these most recent keynotes. Yeah, that kind of leads to, I think, one of the most interesting and controversial features that Apple launched, which was this sign in with Apple. There's a few angles to take with this. So sign with Apple is you can sign in using Face ID or whatever, and you can choose to have your identity obfuscated with like a fake email address. And there's a lot of things people don't really understand about, like, for example, like I sign in with a different email address for every service that I sign up with, which is sometimes a pain in the neck. But one, you can just cut them off if you're getting spammed. But two, it makes it harder to sort of build these sort of profiles about you because that's kind of like the key, like all your data everywhere in Facebook and all these data collectors, like it's all sort of keyed around this thing. And that's the thing, other thing that you know, bugs me about this debate. Like you think Facebook's bad. Like there's all these companies out there that are like a million times worse that are actually selling your data all up and down the street. But I digress. 
signing with Apple would sort of work to disrupt a lot of this. The problem is, is view supported as a developer? Well, what if your user wants to go on the web? Well, then you need to implement it on the web. What if they want to use it on Android? Well, then you need to implement it on Android. You know, it's great if you are sort of an iOS only app. There's very little cost sort of in doing it. But if you're anything broader, it's going to be require a fair bit of work to implement. I hadn't considered that perspective and the overhead that's required. I think that's important to consider. That being said, I was so excited to talk to you about this because we had that debate maybe a few episodes back around whether I was happy with Apple being a quote unquote monopoly. And I'm just happy having them control it because I feel like unlike a lot of other places on the web, they have my best interests at heart. And the reason I was cheering for Apple with this is because like, yes, I wish someone would take my interest and push it down such that I can't be tracked all over the web because I, as an individual user, have a limited ability to do that. But Apple, because of its privileged position in the same way they cut off Facebook when they were using those dev certificates that they shouldn't have been. Like this is an example of prompting change industry-wide in a way that takes my interests at heart. And this is why I continue to support them. I'll give them my money for the devices because I believe that they have my interests at heart as opposed to a number of the services that we use where I don't pay for access. And then it's like, well, they're always balancing between my interests and the advertiser's interests. Well, what you're referring to, you kind of jumped ahead a little bit, but that's fine, is that the way Apple is going to overcome what would be very understandable developer reticence to implement this, because it is going to be costly to implement, is they are making them implement it. And they're making them implement it by saying, if you have a third-party sign-in, as in you're not rolling your own sort of solution, which, by the way, is not always great for developers. Like, do you really want to own customer's identity and run the risk of losing all that? Like, there's a lot of very strong reasons to use Facebook login or to use Google login, for example. And they're saying, if you do that, you have to also include ours. And why can they do that? Because they have app review and app review decides what is in the store and what is not in the store. And oh, by the way, it has to be on top of the list. You can't bury it. It has to be the number one feature. So the long and short of it is, if you have already implemented Google or Facebook, by the way, if you've already implemented it, you can't undo it because huge numbers of your customers use your app with their Google or Facebook login. You can't suddenly kick them out and say, oh, we're going to roll our own. No. So basically, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of developers that are going to implement sign with Apple and they will have zero choice in the matter. And they'll have to implement it on Android and they'll have to implement it on the web and they'll have to do a lot of work that they didn't plan on doing or not do otherwise. Why? Because Apple has a monopoly on the distribution of apps on iOS and they are making you do it. And I, as a user, I feel sorry for the devs. I hadn't considered the Android and the web login and like completely fair point. But I, as a user, am glad they're doing it because yes, I just want someone to like stick up for my interests for once and here they are doing it. Well, I mean, there is pushback on that. One pushback is owning identity is tremendously valuable. And it's not just that Apple's looking out for your interest. They're gaining a unbelievably powerful strategic position. I've written about this a lot in the context of enterprise, where owning identity is hugely important. And by the way, an unanswered question is what about enterprise apps that use like Okta, for example, has a single sign-in offering where that's a third party, but you use it to sign your app. Are they going to have to offer an Apple sign-in? Like, is Apple really going to dip into enterprise software in that way? Enterprise software works the opposite of consumer software, no one is sharing that data. The entire point is to not share that data because it's super protected. And so we'll see. 
I mean, if this is being driven by principle, you would expect them not to because the principle is protecting user privacy. The problem's never been Okta sharing people's data so you can track them around the web. The enterprise almost owns that identity as opposed to the user owning the identity. I would be very surprised if they started playing in that space. Well, I would certainly hope not. But the point being is like there's lots of complications around this sort of approach. And also it is a... It's bold. Well, yeah, I mean, to say, especially in the same day that was announced, they may be investigated for sort of an antitrust sort of thing. But I'll tell you what I do like about it. And again, this is less about whether I like the concept specifically, whether I agree with the concept specifically. It's more, this is what I like about it in terms of what it means for Apple. And what I give it is, I think the App Store is a rot. I think it's bad for Apple. I think the fact that Apple diminishes and will ruin the user experience just so they can get their 30% tax is deeply problematic for a company that wins by being better. They would rather have someone that is using an app have some terrible experience where they have to wander around the web and find a way to pay, or they're going to take 30% and there's no sort of in-between. Like Again, leaving aside whether it's legal or illegal, I think it's fundamentally bad for Apple that they're pinning sort of this narrative and their stock price on making the user experience worse. That's just a bad place to be. And so, you know, with all my objections to the App Store, most of which were, I think it's deeply problematic for lots of reasons, it's anti-competitive, but I also worried that it was bad for Apple itself, despite all the money that Apple was making. This, though, for all the problems it has for developers and all these sort of issues that it may raise for Apple in the long run, as far as regulators are concerned, at least it's driven to your point by principle and not driven by the attempt to sort of grub a few more cents from third party developers. Like motivations matter and like doing something because you believe it's the right thing to do versus doing something because you want to prop up your stock price a little bit more is such a better place to be for a company like Apple. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Still think it's a bit of bullshit. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm with it. It's just like this keynote fired me up in all the ways that, like you said, I just hadn't felt fired up about an Apple keynote for a long time. Like cool hardware, making decisions to kill vestigial pieces of things that don't matter anymore and doubling down on what you believe in. And that's what makes a company great. No, that's exactly right. And like I said, this is why this is like so in our wheelhouse. Why I wanted to make it through fries. Why I wanted to make it through one in the morning and record this because this stuff matters, right? At the end of the day, we can look at financial statements and we can analyze things. We look at numbers. But I like to think that strategy has always been at its best. And this podcast has been at its best when we've had an appreciation for things that go beyond numbers, that there's other stuff that does matter. And you think like this podcast started with sort of debate about Apple and disruption. And and I think part of my contention in that entire debate was that you have to look beyond the numbers. You have to consider things like user experience can't be properly measured. They can't fit on a spreadsheet. There's some aspect that is ineffable, yet real, yet permanent, and people will pay for it. And modularity will never be able to sort of overcome a fundamental deficit in that regard. You know, Apple as a company is built on that intangible, yet very real stuff that is just, you feel like it's better. And that's why the last few years were so dangerous for the company is they were so focused, it felt like, on financial results. They were weaning into the spreadsheet harder than just about anyone. And this is a company that became great and will remain great by virtue of going beyond the spreadsheet. And this was the first keynote in a long time that felt beyond the spreadsheet. 
Game of Phones or Beyond the Spreadsheet. Now we have competition for the title. Hilariously, as I was delivering that line, I was already thinking about it. We're going to have to have a debate about the title of this podcast. <laughs> my mind was moving faster than my mouth in that regard. I'm just glad I got the words out correctly. No, totally. It's a great way of framing it. Back when they were pulling all this services stuff and we were concerned about how they were focusing more on pulling more revenue from existing customers and pushing people to spend more and more and how that's an early indicator of positioning yourself to be disrupted. It felt like this was starting to be the case that they were starting to think about things the wrong way, like starting to think about it from a financial perspective. But it's not until you contrast it with what it's like to go back to the core principles around making great things, getting rid of the things that are not working, accepting objective reality, and then contrasting that with behavior that's being driven by a spreadsheet that it really came home to me. And it was as you were saying that, that it did. I think it's a great contrast and a great point. If we're right, again, we'll see. You know, Apple had that services event a few weeks ago, which was sort of deeply weird (laughs) in a lot of ways. But this was the first real big keynote Apple's had since the day was January 2nd, 2019. Letter from Tim Cook to Apple investors. And again, time will tell, but it feels like we may look back at that in a few years and say, that was a turning point. Like this was a company that was stagnating and it was the best thing that could have happened to them that the sort of floor fell out from them sooner than they expected. And you you fall into the water, you start paddling fear to go somewhere. And paddling furiously is a lot better than not moving at all. Yeah, it's true. And you get back in those situations like that and muscle memory takes over. It's like, what do I know? Like you get in a crisis and it's like what you know starts to take over. And it's like the roots of what that company knows and how it is it run deep. And like, maybe we're starting to see a bit more of it come through. You've written about this, like the importance of crises, like how do companies change culture? How can they make shifts? Right. And ideally, you want that crisis to happen at some point where you're not desperate. Right. You don't want to be Apple in 1997. Right. You, you know, months away from going bankrupt or weeks away or whatever it might have been or not making payroll. You know, Microsoft actually, in retrospect, didn't have it so bad. They had kind of stagnated for a while. Then Windows 8 was a total disaster and they had to write off all this stuff. And then they stupidly bought Nokia and finally, you know, that Steve Ballmer went out and Nadella came in, but that was sufficient. It was a sufficient enough crisis and how fortunate to have a crisis where you're still making billions of dollars a year, but to engender this sort of shift. And it kind of feels like Apple almost got an even better deal than, than Microsoft did, right? They had three years of sort of middling growth as far as the iPhone goes. And then suddenly the iPhone for four years in a row from the six on the iPhone made between 68% and 70% of Apple's revenue for that holiday quarter. And this last quarter, it was 62%. Like that's a huge drop. Like, yes, it's still the biggest and most important, but the relative importance, that's a pretty big shift. It was a useful crisis and it feels like they've made it useful. And again, we'll see in the long run if that ends up being the case, but yeah, never waste a good crisis. No, absolutely. It's also interesting in the context of the last conversation we had around China. I mean, obviously the growth in the iPhone has been slowing for some time, but what percentage of that drop of iPhone sales was as a result of the trade war and reduced Chinese confidence 
Yeah, I mean, to be clear, like they've been hurting in China actually this entire plateau period. Like they never really reached iPhone 6 heights. But yes, you're right. Like last quarter was even worse and the trade war may have been a part of it. I mean, it's it's hard to know what's going on. China's economy is slumping, but there's something in part because of the trade war. But yes, so it, it's it been rough for a while and that was their great hope that China was going to carry the iPhone for the next 10 years. That's very much not been the case. And then like things have gone from bad to worse. Yeah. Apple has lots of China issues. That's another discussion for another day, to say the least. Indeed, that is true. Well, we made it. We did it. Finally. Yes. Thanks to Amazon. Yeah, in honor of sort of the antitrust stuff, we want to thank Amazon for actually delivering the cord that I need. And I want to thank Apple for being anti-competitive in a compelling way that we can podcast about. It's uh... <laughs> Right. That's the curse of the age. It's anti-competitive behavior, but with consumer benefit. You know, that is like a summary of like aggregation theory and like all this sort of stuff that's going on. Like everything's all shook up. I am going on vacation next week. I'm doing my usual summer vacation a little earlier than usual. So I don't think we're going to get to a podcast about this antitrust stuff, but uh, we'll definitely not publish the following week. So it'll be a bit until I talk to you again. Okay. Sounds good. Well, safe travels. Enjoy the holiday and I'll speak to you when I speak to you. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Sounds good. And everyone have a great summer. We will be back at some point this summer, but as always, it's going to be a little bit spotty. So we appreciate your patience. Stay subscribed and we will be back sooner rather than later. Sounds good. Have a good one, mate. All right. Bye-bye.